So I'm going to give you three real-life money tips that you can just note. These will transform your life, and then we'll roll from there. In the 1980s, McDonald's was the dominant fast food industry in America, and their quarter pounder was being sold by the millions, and A&W wanted a cut of the money. And so they came in, determined that they could sell you a bigger burger for a comparable price. They introduced the third pounder. It didn't go. It didn't take off. People wouldn't buy it. And it, they, eventually it crashed. The quarter pounder could not be defeated. And when they did some after-the-fact surveys on what had happened, they determined that the average American was sure they were getting ripped off because a quarter sounded bigger than a third. Tip number one, sharpen your math skills. I was on Facebook not so long ago, and I don't know what kind of search history I'm compiling on my computer, but I saw an ad. There was a sale for caskets, coffins. And my actual thought was, well, that's the last thing I'll need. <laughs> Tip number two, don't buy things you don't need. There's a story of two teenagers who were playing basketball in the driveway. One knocked the other in the head and a contact lens fell out. Two teenage boys were scrounging around on the driveway looking for a contact lens. No success after five minutes. One of them finally yelled for mum to come out and help. Mum found it in 15 seconds. The boy was asking, how'd you find it so fast? She said, we weren't looking for the same thing. You were looking for a piece of plastic. I was looking for 150 bucks. Tip number three, learn the value of a dollar. And perhaps we've already, we could go. Let's say our prayer. We've heard from the Lord. But the clock tells me we have more time. So let's do a little more. My name is Jason Bandura. I'm one of the pastoral staff here. As I said, Joel spoke on the heart of the matter last week. I have a chance to speak on the topic of tithing. Thank you, Joel. This is double-edged. Speaking about tithing in Scripture is not a difficult task. There's lots of Scripture that we can draw from this morning. The complicated part is to do it without disappointing or annoying everybody in the room. I'm guaranteed to get it wrong according to someone in the room. And so when I get it wrong, I would like to hear all about it this week. My name's Jason, and my email is joel.wells at HCC Mail. And I would love to hear every rant and critique that you have on the topic of tithing. Fill my inbox. But the, the detail with tithing is that before this was a religious term, this was just a math term. Any lump of items, wealth, possessions, if you were to lay a grid over top and split it into ten parts, one of those parts would be called the tithe. We have a fraction here, one out of ten, and it's been a standard for millennia, as you'll see in our Old Testaments today. So maybe, maybe as I imagine, everyone who's listening in the room, everyone who's even listening online, I'm imagining there are at least two perspectives that are coming into the room. Some of you are saying, yes! I knew we'd talk about tithing, and I know it's important. Jason, make an airtight case that this is a new covenant command, and we should all get on board. And there'll be some other people saying, Jason, please confirm for me that this is an irrelevant Old Testament law, and we don't have to get on board anymore. Those are kind of the ditches on the road this morning. 
I think the road is somewhere in the middle. I don't know how to hit either of those ditches with any integrity. But there's a good road in the middle, and it happens to be the road where all of our disagreements could arise. So as you remember, fill that inbox, joel.wells. Here's a quick, a quick scheme. What does Scripture have to say about tithing? If you get all the way to your New Testament, you quickly determine, Jason, the word's not even here. The actual term is not in our New Testament. There's a concept, but it's not in the form of a commandment. You get back into your Old Testament, it's mentioned many times, but depending on where you drop into your Old Testament, you see a tithing, there's an evolution of the concept of tithing. And so in some portions, you'll see a mention of an annual tithe. This was a tithe that supported the Levites and the priests and the house of God. In many pieces of Israel's history, it's almost like a religious tax of some sort. You'll see another tithe in other sections that I like to think of as the party tithe. It was a second tithe on top of that, and it was set apart that it was something that you should take to a designated location, often Jerusalem, and it would be used for sacred celebrations. Think of all the festivals that were held through the, his, through the calendar of the Jewish religion. Then there's even a third tithe. In some sections of the story, you see a mention that every third year, there was a tithe that I think of as the local tithe. You did not take this out of your community. You stored it locally, and it would be used for the needs of Levites and travelers and orphans and widows. This tithe was almost like a welfare system of sorts in those ancient communities. So I'm not looking to cause confusion. I actually much prefer clarity But it's just worth pointing out that for someone to say the Bible commands us to tithe is a little misleading. But for someone to say tithing is an irrelevant Old Testament command is a different kind of misleading. So maybe my goal this morning with you is just let's seek the Lord. Let's search his word. I think there are some really sharp and clear points we can glean. Let's start there and then we'll flesh it out from there. So, Father, we are thankful to you this morning. We're thankful that you love us. We're thankful that you're with us. Let your words speak clearly. Let your spirit speak personally. We love you. We seek you. We trust you in all things. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. There's a story I read this in the last couple of weeks. I heard a story. I was listening to it on my audio Bible. Maybe we have a slide coming up for it. It's in Matthew chapter 17. And it was like I was a kid hearing it for the first time. Somehow it just hit my ears as if I'd never heard it before. Jesus and Peter are together. And some sort of authority figure comes to them and says, Do you pay the tax? Is the tax related to the temple? And Jesus kind of has much to say, I'm sure, but in that moment he says to Peter, hey, just to be in line with everything, Peter, you go uh, catch a fish. And in the mouth of the fish, you're going to find a coin that's big enough for my tax and your tax. And the story sort of ends abruptly. We presume that it all went just the way that Jesus told them it would. But I cannot get out of Peter's head. Imagine the thoughts as he moved through those motions. Okay, Jesus, I heard you. I'm going to go do it. And as he's going to grab his gear, head to the water, throw out a net or a line, feel that nibble, pull that fish, feel that mouth, find that coin, pay that tax. Oh, my wheels would have been turning. 
I've seen, I've had friends who dabbled in, you know, uh, illusion and magic tricks and stuff, and sometimes they'll do a thing right in front of me on the table. It's right there, and they pull something off, and then I go, how'd you do that? Do it again, do it again. This one has that effect on me. I would be wondering the mechanics of the miracle. How did Jesus do that? Did he know the past? Did he know there was a fish that ate a coin? Was he playing with the present? Did he know? Did he guide my feet to a certain point on the shore? Did he guide that fish to that point? Or did he do it a different way? Did he know that I would just grab any fish? And then he magically put that coin in its mouth from a mile away. How did he do it? I don't know. I'm sure that's not the point of the story. I'm sure the point of the story was to send Peter home with some blown circuits, but with some clear convictions. And the convictions are, apparently Jesus knows what I need. Apparently he can provide what I need. Apparently his knowledge and provision are way beyond anything I can compute. And if those were the takeaways, we'd be served well. There's a quote that I read many, many years ago, and it's still lodged in my mind, which means it must have been a good one. It was this sentence from the beautiful mind and life of Dallas Willard. When he was thinking of being a disciple of Jesus, he said, the most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. And if you read the rest of his section, he'll go on to say, because the thing you become is the only thing you get to take. Everything else gets left behind at some point. Joel was reminding us last week that this is the point. We can talk about dollars all we wish, but until we're talking about the heart, we're missing the point. It's who we are. Who we are is a greater thing than, who, than what we have. But Jesus knows. He knows that the things in our hands and the way that we handle them actually has significant effect on our heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? So with this as sort of our lens, this is how I wish to move into our lesson, that the thing we're talking about is not so much what we do, we'll talk about that, but the grander point is who are we becoming? Some will dismiss tithing and say it's an Old Testament law, we're not in that covenant anymore. Scripture's much more fun than that. Scripture will come back to my, my sentence that it's an Old Testament law and say it's not even a law, Jason, it's pre-law. It's 650 years before the Ten Commandments. You don't get out that easy. And so maybe, if I'm making a first point this morning, it might be this one, that tithing is not a rule. Tithing is not a command. It's not even a law. It's a test. That's how Scripture presents tithing to us. There's an unusual story in Genesis 14. This is the first place where tithing gets mentioned in our scriptures. And as I said, it's six centuries before Moses has the Ten Commandments. We're not in a time of law. We're in quite an earlier time. Abram is the main character in Genesis 14. And in his part of the ancient world, there's a battle between kings happening. A coalition of five kings is fighting a coalition of four kings. The four kings overpower the five kings. And in the defeat, the city of Sodom is taken, where Abram's relative Lot lives. Lot is among the people captured and taken away. Abram has already become significant enough that he has 300 men at his disposal. And so he rallies his troops and goes after the captured ones, rescues Lot and all the possessions and people of Sodom. The king of Sodom is impressed and grateful. And this is when we get to this story. 
After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, then the king of Sodom, whose name was Bera, he came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. This is the king's valley, not so far from modern-day Jerusalem. Then Melchizedek. And now if you read the rest of the story, you realize we've never heard of this guy before. We already named nine kings, but this isn't one of them. He's new. Now Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, he came out and brought bread and wine. He was also the priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. Creator, some of your Bibles will say possessor. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator and possessor of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then there's an important little sentence that we'll skip for now. Well, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then there's the king of Sodom, and he jumps in and says to Abram, Give me the people back, but keep all the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With a raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, the God most high, the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. The oath is that I'll not accept anything belonging to you, not a thread, not a strap on a sandal, so you'll never be able to say that you made me what I am. I will accept nothing, but take what my men have eaten, that will be all right. Take the share that belongs to them. And he names a few and then says, let them have their share. It's a story you can blow past. It seems silly. We don't know half of the characters. There's a bunch of ancient kings whose names sound like Pokemon. And we just, the story comes and goes real quick. But there's something here I saw this week that I'd never seen before. Abram is faith. Who's Abram? We often call him the father of faith. He comes into this moment and he has a decision. He actually has a very clear contrast and it's embodied in two kings. One king comes to him with symbolic provision representing God Most High. What a great name. Puts wine and bread before him. That doesn't have any symbolic value for a room full of Christians. The other king comes and says, let's have a deal. Let's make a business-like contract. You've scratched my back, let me scratch yours. Let's keep a partnership here. We could be useful partners to each other. Let's both feel mostly independent, but when it's convenient to use each other, let's make sure we do that, especially me using you. Here's this strange partnership, and Abram is faced with a, a choice. I can go with the guy who's handing me all I can carry home, or I can go with the guy who's come with a word of blessing saying, God Most High is with you. He's the creator and possessor of the earth, and symbolically this bread and wine are his promise that he'll provide for you if you trust him. Business transaction or trust in an unseen provider? And Abram makes his choice. He could take a load from here, but he gives a tithe over here. It's a test of some sort to the father of faith, and he makes his choice with Scripture's first tithe. It's the language of faith. Hebrews 11 is the chapter of faith, and in verse 6 it tells us that without faith it's impossible to please God. Why is that so? Because anyone who comes to him has to believe that he exists, or even might exist, and that he rewards the ones who earnestly seek him. 
Abram's the father of faith, and he's got this weird choice in this story. You can choose a gift that's being offered, or you can choose a giver who you trust will always come through. You can have plunder and take it, or you can have a provider, but you'll have to trust. You can get more here, but God Most High is over here. Take what you can, or tithe what you have. And the move of faith in the test of Abram is to tithe what he had. This is the math of faith, apparently. And it's not limited to the life of Abram. Way beyond Scripture's pages, you and I are going to face this test on a regular basis. Tithing is a test. Scripture presents it that way. It also presents it that tithing is a form of training. My wife and I have moved multiple times. We've, through our marriage, which is 25 years now, we've lived in three countries, probably eight or ten different homes. Jobs have changed. Lots of, a decade of marriage happened before children arrived. We've had all these stories somewhere in our boxes of things. We have a file folder that represents all the budgets we've ever lived by. Every so often I come across it again and go back to the earliest ones where we were 21 years old, a youth pastor and a university student living in the attic of a house in Saskatoon. Those numbers were pretty small. I remember budgeting to the cent and it worked most of the time. Through the years, we've had seasons we had much, much more. We've had seasons that felt much tighter. Our financial life has been all over the place through the years. But I look at those spreadsheets, and I always see our first line on the thing was always giving. Even at 21, somehow we determined that 10% point was going to be something we recognized. I don't know how we got there, to be honest. I was quizzing her this week, seeing what she remembered, and we both confessed we never had a dogmatic pastor that sort of beat us into it. We never had a prosperity preacher that was influential on our ears. It just always rang true. When we came to Jesus fairly young in our teenage years, we knew a few things. We knew enough to come, but we didn't know a bunch. But somehow we knew quickly that following involved giving. And I'm not even talking about money. I just mean I knew when I came to Jesus as a follower that now I was giving him my attention. I was going to give him constant room. If you can instruct or correct me, Lord, you have my ear. I would give him constant commitment. If you're going to adjust my dreams or priorities, that's your right. You get to do that. I was going to give him submission and devotion and loyalty. And so by the time all of those discussions had been had in my heart, by the time I gave myself to him in baptism, speaking of money seemed like a fairly tiny thing. Now training is the word I've used, and training is where things get real, right? I've heard a number of people say things like, a goal without a plan is just a wish, which is a nice, tight little way of saying, unless you've got some steps to execute, you probably won't get to your grand goals. We need things we can hang on to. We need actions we can take. And so any disciple is going to know, hey, I'm trying to grow into a person of trust, generosity, gratitude, dependence, partnership with the Lord. These are all the grand, great things to which we aspire. But they're somewhat abstract how do you get beyond theory? How do you get into a real-life laboratory where those things can actually develop? Scripture would say, hey, Jason, pay attention. Tithing is a pretty much timeless model to get you there. There's a story 
Sorry, I've flipped one page ahead. There's not a story. There's a practical question. While we're being practical, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians. It's not about tithing. I can't even tell you it is. It's not. But in 2 Corinthians 9, there's a passage where Paul talks very explicitly about giving. The Jerusalem church is having some struggles. There's poverty affecting people. And Paul sort of puts out a message among all the Gentile churches who have benefited. Many of them sort of been planted and nurtured by the Jerusalem Christians and says, hey, it's time to give back. It's time to support the mother church. And so he, he's gathering as he travels. He will gather offerings that are being given and take them back to the church in Jerusalem. And in 2 Corinthians 9, he gives a few little verses that are oh so practical. Whether about tithing or not, if we're looking for concrete actions on how we turn into these types of people, maybe there's some gems in here. At verse 6 he says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly reaps sparingly. Whoever sows generously reaps generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so whether tithing's already your practice, you've been doing it for years, whether it's a totally new concept, you're hearing it for the first time, whether it's something you know about, but you've always been working toward it, God's gracious and compassionate. If 10% feels crippling, start with one. Find a place. He honors our efforts and he moves us from there. But there's a solid outline in 2 Corinthians 9. Each one of you must give as he's decided in his heart. Who's it for? Everyone. Paul was talking to all the people. But he knew that for each of them it would cause a pause. Do some soul searching. Assess what you've been given. Assess what you could share. Everyone's got that process. I'm not part of yours. You're not part of mine. The Lord is in my process and he's in yours. Each one of you, give as decided in his heart. Don't do it reluctantly. Don't do it under compulsion. If you're feeling a loud, forceful voice of someone around you who's beating you into it and ripping it out of your hands, probably something's off. That's not how we give. The Lord leads and the people follow. For God loves a cheerful giver. It's supposed to be an act that actually increases the level of connection that I have with him and the level of pleasure that I have in him. Let's not beat each other up thinking that somehow he takes more pleasure if I put more in the plate. No, you'll probably take more pleasure, Jason. That's the cheerfulness of the giving act. And while we're getting practical, maybe a question. This is a quick tangent, but it's practical. I've had times through my life when I thought, Lord, I've got this line on my spreadsheet. It's my 10%. Do I have to give it to my church or can I give it to any number of other things? I've got people knocking on my door. The Red Cross, Cancer Research, Telemiracle. There's a thousand good things to give money to. I don't have a verse. Book, chapter, verse, I don't have it. But a couple guiding thoughts. I feel like when I've brought this before the Lord, one of his responses to me has been, Jason, all those good causes, you should pay attention to them. Who is going to give to and support those good causes? And my answer is, I guess lots of people. Some of them will be God's people. Some of them will be not his followers. But there'll be lots of people who give to those things. And and I maybe should be one of them. And then he's turned the question on me. Who do you think will give to kingdom-centered work that is explicitly under the name of Jesus? Well, that'll probably only be his people. And for me, that has often felt like the point of conviction to say, your loyalties to him, Jason, start there. 
If you want a second line on your budget for other giving, throw it in there, my friend. I'd love you to be generous. I think that this has some scriptural backing because when I look through the Old Testament, I see at least three points. There may be more where the nation's spiritual journey was rising and falling. And in those falls, often God would rise up a leader who would sort of have to restore things. Hezekiah, Nehemiah, Malachi. These are at least three of the examples. And the passages on the screen would give you a sense. If you want to dig farther, you can. But if you look in those passages this week, you'll see a pattern. Each of these reformers, when the faith of the nation had fallen into a hole, they were raised up and they always had to do the same thing. They always had to reestablish the tithing practices of the nation, which then allowed them to restore the sanctuary of God, which then allowed them to reestablish the priests and the Levites. Practically speaking, the religious systems needed money. You could come to me as a critic and say, well, they needed money. Systems don't work without money. I get it, Jason. But spiritually, there's a thing happening there that says, hey, tangible support for God's work matters. When the devotion of God's people leads them to depositing resources, then apparently blessings flow through the faith community. We all benefit. And then it even flows beyond us into the world in which we live. But when apathy sets in and people withhold resources, that flow of blessing gets weak and gets stagnant and we feel it and the people outside our doors feel it as well. The church isn't exactly Old Testament Israel. I totally get it. But there seems to be a principle here that I just can't release with good conscience. So on our spreadsheet, again, in my old filing cabinet, back to the ancient days of our marriage, there always seemed to be a tithing line and then a giving line, knowing I want to commit to my church, but I want to have flexibility to support other things. For us, that's been the way the Lord's led us. Take it and do with you what you wish. He's very faithful to lead you as well. So tithing's a test. Tithing's a form of training. But when I read through Scripture, I also see tithing linked to one other ancient concept. And it's this concept of things that are first and things that are finest, which is where our sermon title came from this week. If I started on page one of my Bible, by the third page I'd be in Genesis 4, And I'd be reading of the first siblings, and I'd be shocked that they're having a disagreement with one another. Cain and Abel doing their thing, living their lives, raising animals, growing crops, bringing offerings to the Lord. Whatever concept of the Lord they had at that point in history, here's the story. Abel kept flocks, Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, that phrase is worth remembering, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of his soil as an offering. And Abel also brought an offering. His was fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain he didn't look on favor. And Cain was angry and his face became downcast. And the Lord warns Cain in the verses to follow, warns him and says, you're in a dangerous spot. Things are churning inside of you. Be careful what you do next. Sin is crouching at your door. In the flow of time, that was the phrase. And we have a contrast. They both brought an offering. Cain brought something, sometime. Abel brought the best from the first fat portions. And here's this contrast. Abel positioned himself to 
receive an, an affirmation. Cain positioned himself to receive an adjustment. The Lord is good and loving in affirming us or in adjusting us. But this story sets us up as one of these examples. Throughout history, the concept of Israel, in Israel's theology is very clear. When you get, you give. You give God the first and you give God the finest. So when your crops spring up out of your fields, when trees grow fruit, when your livestock produces young ones, when your family has children, when anything is acquired, then it's a moment of assessment and it's a moment of apportioning. And then you move forward. Gratitude is established. God is acknowledged. This is a real life living out of Jesus' sentence. Seek first his kingdom. And all these other things will be given to you as well. So maybe if we're adding a third point to your notes for the morning, maybe it's first fruits forge faith. How is it that this concept of first fruits can form and strengthen our faith? Well, I've chosen that middle word on purpose. It forges our faith. What's a forge? A forge is that furnace in a blacksmith shop where the piece being worked on is put in and heated nice and hot and then brought out and pounded or bent or shaped. And then it goes in again and it comes back out. It softens the metal, readying it to get worked. I've told you bits about the tithing practices in our household. The thing I didn't tell you is I have not always loved this practice. I can recall a handful of times when it got real pointy between me and the Lord. Budgets got tight. I'm looking around at some of the people in my life thinking, am I mishandling my life? How is this working so well for them? And I'm feeling every bump on the financial road. I remember sitting and doing the math thinking, my junker of a vehicle that bugs me all the time could be replaced in a snap. I'd have a very nice monthly vehicle payment if I stopped tithing. The vacation I wish I was taking instead of the week at my in-laws <laughs> could quickly become a possibility if I was tallying up some of those dollars. And it, arrives, it takes me to moments when I'm looking at the Lord and I trust He's looking at me and I'm thinking, do I still want to do this? That's the assessment moment. And then I assess, I'm still in. Still here. I'm still in Abram's shoes making the choice. You want to grab as much as you can and have sort of a business deal with how you handle God and how you handle possessions or you want to trust that God Most High will give you what you need as you need it. I'm with you, Abram. I'm laying my tithe. I'm making my choice. The other thing I notice about the forge is that the forge speaks of frequency, right? I'm not a blacksmith and I don't know that craft, but I know enough to know that the, the piece being worked on doesn't go into the fire just once. Goes in, gets worked. Goes in, gets worked. Goes in, gets worked. And I wonder if part of the genius, part of God's genius of the concept of first fruits is that it is regular training. 
You go through the process of reassessing gratitude, redetermining trust, reconsidering contentment and sacrifice and devotion. You go through that process of training every time, every season, every harvest, every birth, every paycheck. The cycle runs again because apparently he knows I need more than one lesson. We're going to run this thing every two weeks or more, Jason. That's how often you need it. And so every time blessing comes into the hands of God's people, the process starts again. Blessing from the Lord. I assess. I apportion. I take action. And because the Lord desperately needs my dollars, not a chance. That's not why the process exists. He needs none of my dollars. Because we buy His blessing with our box. Nope. He's not bought. Remember where we started, because it's where we're going to end. The most important thing in your life, it's not what you do. It's who you're becoming. And how we handle what's in our hands apparently has major effect on what develops in our hearts. Scripture tells us elsewhere, above all else, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Everything you are, all the fruit that will come off of your life, it will be tied to the quality and substance of who we are, right? Join me standing. We're going to pray together. A final thought as we move to prayer would be this one. I talked about tithing as training, and if we think of physical training, if you want to reshape your body, it will come down to exercise as one of your choices. And every exercise I can think of requires a certain position. We configure our body into a certain position, and then we execute some sort of motion. If you put yourself in the wrong position, and then you execute the motion, you can hurt yourself, or you can just waste a lot of time. Because nothing's actually happening. So positioning really matters. And if God's real interest is in who we become, then He's not seeking to see our souls injured. And He's not seeking to see us waste time on becoming nothing. He will pay attention to position. And in the realm of money matters, it seems that He has millennia of history of shaping people through two key concepts that position us well. This is why we've spoken of tithing, and this is why we've spoken of first fruits. These position us to experience His touch, His transformation. Hmm. We just still ourselves before You, Lord. We invite You to be the teacher, Holy Spirit. There are portions of this morning's lesson that, that are meant for us, Lord. Highlight them, bold them, push them down into the soil of our spirit so that they turn into a seed that grows into something that bears fruit for years to come. If there are things in this morning's sermon that are distracting and unhelpful, blow them away with your breath. Father, I can't, I can't resist the thought as we've spoken of fractions and first fruits. 
<laughs> you, are not, you are not due the portions. You are due everything. We sang it earlier. We remind ourselves now. Actually, let's, let's remind ourselves now. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. You are worthy of it all. You are of it all for from you are all things and to you are all things you deserve the glory for from you are all things and to you are all things you deserve Remind us, Lord, of the power of our blessings. You place things into our hands and then not just to care for our needs, but apparently these items, these blessings have so much power that what we do with them next shapes who we become. So let us be people with a mind to blessing the world around us, but let us be wise in handling our blessings in a way that we become reflections of your holy nature, that we become full-on disciples of your Son, that we become sanctified, set-apart temples of your Holy Spirit. Let us not handle things in a way that we would be shrunk, that we would be mutated, that we would be fragmented into something less than you've created us to be. Thank you that you are faithful to teach and faithful to lead and faithful to give us all we need. We seek you, trust you, love you. We honor you as our Lord, as the creator and possessor of heaven and earth, God most high. Thank you that you love us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. To the ones tuning in online, we're grateful you've been here and trust you've been blessed. To the ones who are here, one of the perks of first service is we don't have to rush. So if it's worth sitting and praying or visiting with a friend, please do so. Until next week, may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Well, that brings us to the end of our time together. We hope that you found insight and had moments that spoke to you right where you needed it. Before you go, share the love and post this inspiring video to your page. Who knows how many lives could be impacted by it. And if you aren't already, like, follow, and turn on your social media notifications to keep up to date on all the exciting things happening at our church. Here at Harvest City, we're all about connecting with our community and celebrating those big moments. 
like if you've recently decided to fully dedicate your life to Jesus. We'll be your cheerleaders and help you take those first steps. And if you're going through a tough season, let us know how we can help you. Plus, we've got tons of programs for kids, youth, and adults if you're looking for a new community to be part of. To send us a message or check out more about HCC, head over to our website, harvestcity.ca. To all of our financial partners, thank you for investing into the kingdom of God. Your generosity allows us to keep doing what we're called to do and reach even more people. If you're interested in contributing, please visit harvestcity.ca slash giving for more info. Thanks for being here. Keep living your call and we'll catch you again soon.